Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. In the late 18th century, William Wilberforce was converted. Almost single-handedly, he broke the shackles of slavery. People there were just totally different. We are looking at the footprint of God over the last 2,000 years. Since the Roman legion destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., the Jewish people have a nation of their own. And he said, well, no, Randy, we're not all just faking it. There is a living hope, and his name is Jesus. And I believe that that's really why you're here. Christ died for us. History Makers. Hi, and welcome to History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. Today we're hearing from Pastor Clark Taylor. Greg Newman caught up with him recently. Clark, you grew up as a young fellow living on a farm with mum and dad, Joe and Rita, with your three brothers and sister at Palin Creek, which is about 100 kilometres southeast of Brisbane, for those that aren't aware. Someone who was special to you, though, as a young boy, was Frolic. Tell us about Frolic. Frolic was a, a chestnut pony. He was a great horse. I won a camp draft with Florick. He was sort of my mate growing up. On page two of the book, uh, there's a picture of you and Frolic. So what age were you riding horses? Oh, I could almost ride a horse when I could walk. So Dad used to take me out on a little pad and for a saddle. And, uh, yeah, I grew up riding horses. Your parents attended the local Methodist church once a month. Did they have a strong Christian belief? Tell us about their faith. Well, Mum always had a very strong Christian faith in a traditional Methodist Christian faith. Dad had a Christian faith, but he'd never had an experience with God till later on in his life. And about 10, though, uh, I mean, you made a commitment later on, which we're going to talk about, but there was still a bit of a a commitment you made when you were just 10 years of age. Yes, that was up at the Barney View Methodist Church. Holds a maximum of 40 people. And uh, an evangelist came there for a week. And I'll be forever grateful to him. I don't know his name, but my father went forward and experienced Christ that night. So the next night I went forward. Mainly because my dad had gone the night before. Now, the Taylor family made the news in Brisbane's Courier Mail in April 1953. Tell us why. Dad had bought a million acres up in the Northern Territory, 1,500 square miles of country. And it was about uh, 2,500, about 5,000 k's up. Dad and I went there. I turned 14 on my way up to the Territory to take over the property. And then we came back and we went back again towards the end of my 14th year. So we took uh, all of our gear with us and there's nothing much out there. It's a long way out. It certainly is. I think we're talking about... Uh, two, the, the trip was 2,000 miles. Um, you must have some memories of that big trek. Yes, but we used to camp across the Barclay Tablelands, which is a huge semi-desert area. You couldn't tell which way you were going. The first morning because we'd leave before daylight. Dad was confused. Is it this way or that? Because we'd come round and circle round a bit to find a camping spot. So from then on, we parked our cars in the direction we were going to go. And so we could leave before daylight and get some miles under our tail. Okay, look, there's so many stories uh, you could share and uh, get the book, The Bloke from the Bush, and you can read them all. But one involves a cow at South Alligator River. Tell us what happened. Well, we used to throw the cattle. They were wild. The station had been abandoned for eight years. So the youngest beast branded was eight years old. And the rest had never seen a human being. So they were wild. And I mean, 
wild, wild. So we used to throw them and they'd break from the mob. We'd run them into a mob of quieter cattle and then they'd, they'd just break. You'd, one man would go after one beast. You'd gallop up beside them as quick as you could get to them, jump off your horse at a gallop, grab their tail, tie it round your hand and they'd go to gore you, you know, with their horns, kill you if they could, get rid of you. You could pull them down. You had about a two-second opportunity when they were off balance. And so this cow bailed up. She didn't bailed up. You know, she stopped. She didn't let me get her. And then you'd wave your hat at them and you'd sidestep them and grab them by the tail as they went past. Again, they had to be about three feet from you, one metre, before you sidestepped. Otherwise, they could change direction and hit you. So it was a very split-second decision. So you, the apprenticeship is very short in that game. Otherwise, you, you're not around for the second round. But somehow I missed her and she got me under the armpit, threw me up in the air, and I didn't think about God. I'd left my early commitment to Christ and I thought, no life for a man out there and I wanted to be rough and hard. And I became that. So as I was up in the air... I cried out, save me God and I'll save you the rest of my life. Where it came from, I have no idea. From that early experience, I guess, buried somewhere deep in me. And then an Aboriginal stockman came up, which was unusual, because that cow had me and, and they don't, one man to one beast was our rule. But he came up and shouted and so she left me, dropped me on the ground and went to kill him. And uh, so I got up and Anyhow, we got her down. But it seemed to me that years later, at the Billy Graham crusade, God cashed that check in. In chapter two, uh, we also read about the, you know, your dad's passing uh, in a, an accident in the territory. You speak about your mum's Jesus encounter shortly after your dad died. Yes, well, mum, that was actually dad got killed on the Palin Creek property. He and mum came down for the wet season. Rita and I stayed up there because we had meat contracts by then with the Hercules mine and prospectors. So we used to kill five bullocks a week and take them in pack saddles and deliver them. So we stayed to do that. Dad got killed. He came back. Uh, Mum came back. And it was... She was heartbroken. And she cried a, a lot. There was no place for a woman out there on her own. And, but I had to go out and stock camps. Life goes on. I came back three weeks later and Mum looked happy. And I said, yeah, okay, Mum. And she said, Clark, Jesus let me see a vision of Dad. And I said, did she, Mum? I really wasn't believing at all. Uh, and But Mum was happy. That was what I was concerned about. She said, yes. And I said, what was he like? And she said he looked about 30. He didn't have a wrinkle. He looked so happy. And he said, don't worry, lass. It'll all be all right. Lass was Dad's love word for Mum. And from that day on, I never saw her sad. We'll move on to Chapter 3, Reality Check. Oh, let's get to that uh, big date. May 30, 1959, a man called Bill Harper gives you a call. You're just 21 at the time. What was that invitation? Well, Bill is a cousin of mine, and he's a very quiet guy, a bachelor all his life. He didn't ever say much, Bill, 
But he rang me up and asked me to go to see Billy Graham. I'd just come down from the Territory to make the southern property pay a bit more money. It had slipped a bit. And my brother-in-law took over the Territory property. And um, I said, no, I'm not interested in that. Thanks. And after he hung up, we were on a party line in the old days. I was this great wave of loneliness swept over me, which I was used to be on my own, you know. But it was really major... I felt so alone. So I thought, oh, we could bring him back. We could talk about cattle on the way down. I was dealing in a few cattle on the side. And so that's how I come to go. That's that's the meeting where it all started for you and you gave your life to Christ. At 21, you could hardly read or write, but once a month you look forward to that envelope from the Billy Graham organisation. Yeah, they were were amazing because when I went forward, a counsellor came to talk to me. Uh, but I said, no, mate, she's right. I've come what I did. I'm going now. But he kept on pestering me and he got me information. So I I got this letter. I never answered one of them, partly because I couldn't write much, but I read every scripture and I memorised every scripture, put it in my pocket. They were perforated. And uh, so I thank God for Billy Graham. He's my father in the faith. I suppose your first foray into ministry was then starting up a Sunday school. Where was this? That was in Rathdowney Methodist Church. Uh, I was building some pigsties. I used to mark them out in the daylight and dig them with two hurricane lanterns and a crowbar and shovel at night time. This is a long time ago. There was no postal diggers in those days. God would regularly talk to me and I'd talk to him. I felt him say to me, he'd like to, me to give up uh, some time and start a Sunday school. I'd never been to Sunday school. So I went round to some farmers and uh, got 11 kids would come. I had a VW and I stuffed 11 kids and myself in that VW. They were everywhere. There was no rules, in road rules. You couldn't do it now. But And I took them seven miles into Rathdowney and I thought, Ying, what am I going to tell them? So I told them everything I knew about God took 10 minutes and then took them up to McGavin's and bought them an ice cream and took them home. And then I drove 27 miles to the desert and talked to the minister and said, would you tell me a story from the Bible? I've started a Sunday school. So he told me a story and I'd jazz it up a bit on the way home. And I did that every week for weeks until I'd got the hang of reading a bit better and taught these kids. Well, 18 months after becoming a Christian, you decide to attend Bible college, or maybe we could say you were called. You sold everything you owned, leased the family land, moved to the city of Brisbane, I suppose the big smoke for you in those days. Hey, talking of smoke, first day of Bible college, you turn up with a rolled cigarette in your mouth. Yes, well, I smoked all the time. If I woke up in the night, I'd have a smoke. Had done since I was 11, I started smoking. It was normal if I was nervous, I wanted to smoke. And I was very nervous about going to Bible college. So I was smoking and the blokes, two blokes met me. So I shook their hand and they said, oh, listen, you can't smoke here, this is a Bible college. I said, I know it is, I just joined it. They said, well, you can't smoke here. And so I put them out, you know, dropped on the ground and rubbed them with my foot, put them out. But then the craving started, and it was a long time till I could give up smoking. 
But it was during this time you met a 22-year-old brunette, Annie Lang. Were, were you, to use that old-fashioned term, were you smitten? Was it love at first sight? Well, I was very shy. I'd never taken a girl out in my life. There were no girls in the Territory. They're just zero. And, uh, well, where, where I lived anyhow, we were out in the bush. So I'd never held a girl's hand or really talked to a girl. So Bible college was my first introduction to women. And Anne asked me to play tennis with her. And I thought, oh, she must like me because I was so shy and nervous amongst most folks because in the bush it was just me and uh, some great Aboriginal stockmen. But that was it. And so we had a game of tennis and then I worked up the courage to ask her out. And so we went across the ferry and all that sort of stuff, you know. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, finally, it's time for your Bible college graduation. But you didn't show up, Clark. (laughs) Well, I thought I'd failed. So I was too embarrassed to be the only one that had failed. So I jumped in a VW and went for a drive into the bush where I felt safe. And I came back late at night after they'd all gone to bed next day I found out that I'd passed every subject. We'll move on to Chapter 4, Boot Camp. Now, your time in Methodist ministry begins as a probationary minister at Mount Isa, but after about 12 months, you were overcome by an illness that threatened to take your life. Can you tell us about that? Well, I'd been to see Anne. Anne had gone to the mission field in Papua New Guinea. And though I'd taken my tablets for malaria, but I got, uh, it came out in me, months after I came home and I was assigned to uh, Mount Isa and I covered an area 240,000 square miles in a in a, a four-wheel drive vehicle and I slept in it and I'd visit cattle stations and a uh, bunch of drovers on the road wherever I saw people I'd stop and talk to them and I led a number to Christ when on my way home this malaria hit me And I was so weak, I could barely drive the vehicle home, uh, almost unconscious. I got it in, I collapsed at the man's yard, and the minister, the senior minister, came out, put me in hospital. They flew me to Brisbane, and they thought it was cerebral malaria, and it destroys your brain cells. And so I was very ill for years after that. Um, I sought permission to marry Anne. She flew home because I thought I was going to die. Permission was denied. So I said to Anne, would you marry me anyhow? So we got married. There's a bloke standing behind me because I used to take fits with this malaria thing and go unconscious for a couple of hours at a time, pretty much every day for two years. So it was a pretty hard time. And Anne and I got married and we started off uh, in those situations. So your first daughter, Linda, who penned the book, Bloke from the Bush, is born in 1965. Soon after, you're well enough to once again work as a probationary Methodist minister, but this time at a rehab farm for long-term prisoners. How was that experience? It was a great experience because I love men. I understand men. Um, I worked with them, you know. They were tough men in the Territory. And I had to learn how to work them because we worked hard up there, long hours, seven days a week. So I was very keen, I am very keen to lead any person at all to Jesus Christ. 
So it was a good time, but then malaria came back on me again. That's right. That was um, about 1967, and this is the time when your only son, Philip, is is born, uh, and uh, back comes the malaria. Now, you then sought divine healing. Well, yes, of course, by now I could read. And I read the Bible, and uh, if you read Mark's Gospel, which won't take anybody more than an hour or so, you'll read that on the very first page, Jesus is healing people. So I asked a few ministers, because doctors couldn't heal me, why doesn't Jesus heal people today? And their answer generally was, because we have doctors now, we we need them. And I said, but they can't heal me. And that started a quest in me to try to understand how do I get God to heal me? Because I needed supernatural help. Like lots of people in Australia today need the power of Almighty God just to touch them. Just a touch from God is all you need. Okay, a year later, 1968, you commence work as an assistant Methodist minister at Upper Mount Gravatt. Within six months, the church has tripled in size. Uh, that must have been an exciting time. I think you were, you were still reciting the sermons of Billy Graham back then. No, that was earlier. While I was in Bible college, I had a 78 record, and there were five sermons, I think it was, from Billy Graham. I'd memorised them. I heard them so often. So I had five nights for Christ because they were going to close a church down in the circuit I was then in. I couldn't bear the thought of that. And I said, well, just give me a bit of a go at it. And so I put on this Five Nights for Christ and I uh, had young kids uh, that were riding push bikes. I stopped them all and I said, look, if you'd deliver these pamphlets for me, I'd made up 5,000 pamphlets to houses. I'll make you some Johnny Cakes like we used to eat in the Territory and I'll tell you some stories about the Territory. So these kids all came back to the churchyard and I had the fire going and the Johnny Cakes cooked and anyhow there were 70 people gave their lives to Christ in that five nights with Billy Graham sermons. In the book, The Bloke from the Bush, a few pages are devoted to a, a pretty amazing night, July 1968, St Paul's. You receive a word from the Lord that on the next Sunday night, the church would be packed. When you stepped into the hall, it's full. People even sitting in the aisles, a troop of circus people, secretary of the Atheist Society. Tell us a bit more about that night. Well, that was my first night where I really saw the supernatural of God flowing in an enormous way. I was scared out of my wits. I was still new. Really, I was still pretty raw from the bush, you know. But God had said that he was going to do amazing things, and he did. I saw people, a blind eye came open, deaf ears came open. All sorts of things happened. They happened very orderly in a Methodist style of way. People would just come up and we'd pray for them and a man had his ear blown out in the war and so his eardrum was gone and God gave him a new one. Uh, All sorts of things like that happened that night. There was about a hundred people outside looking through the glass side wall and and the senior minister was there and at that time he thought all of this stuff might have been demonic. So he put a stop to the meeting. The powers to be, as you said, in the Methodist Church, like that gentleman, were concerned about this night and other meetings, and they weren't sure what was happening. 
Was it of the Holy Spirit? Was it, as you say, demonic? Was it of Clark? But either way, it wasn't Methodist. <laughs> and uh, you sent away for more studies at King's College to get your doctrines sorted out. And you had to pay your own way, which meant you got a job as a labourer, repaired boiler ovens at night. But you did learn Hebrew and Greek at a uni entrance standard. You achieved a lot academically, but uh, you were never one to enjoy studying, Clark. No, I hated study. I just, it's not my forte. Hard work is my forte. I like work, but I didn't like study, but I've done a lot of study in my life, obviously. And I I used to think that I was just dumb, but I discovered that basically I've got a pretty good brain, uh, but I'm still not a student as per se. I'm a student of a human being and a student of God, most certainly. Thanks for joining us on History Makers. If you'd like to listen to this interview again, just go to historymakers.tv. There you'll find links to Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to our iTunes podcast or check out our YouTube clips. History Makers is a faith-based ministry and we appreciate all of your support. The vision of History Makers is to share the good news of Jesus all over the world. If you've got a suggestion of someone we can interview, send us an email, info at historymakersradio.com. God bless you. Have an awesome day. I'm Matt Prater, and why don't you go and make history? History Makers. History Makers is proudly sponsored by Bible League, who serve the local church and other partners around the world by providing Bibles, scripture materials, and training to help people meet Jesus. They provide God's Word to a lost and needy world. Bible League plants Bibles in prisons, among persecuted Christians and in poor nations, bringing the love and light of Christ into many people's lives around the world. Make history today by joining our friends at Bible League and planting a Bible that will help someone meet Jesus. Go to bl.org.au. Station sponsor. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.